Esther found herself at that intersection of religion and politics, that intersection in her, in her life of where following God and being a, a subject per particular nation intersected and it cost her quite a possible risk. And that's what we want to explore today for us. How is it following Jesus intersects with politics? How does, how does that work? What does that look like? What does it cost us? Some of you, as you looked at the sermon topics a month or two ago, and you looked ahead that we were going to look both at patriotism, which we looked at last week, and politics this week, you thought maybe I'd lost my marbles completely. What are you thinking to look at those? But it's certainly always the case in our lives that we meet this intersection regularly, and we need the biblical guidance. We need the direction from the Scriptures to, to guide us. Uh, last week, as we looked at patriotism, we, we, we looked at the boundaries of the game. What are out of bounds? What's in bounds? What are the boundary lines? And on the one end, as we looked at First Peter chapter 2, we were reminded that our essential community, our primary community, is followers of Jesus. Our, that, that is our, our nation. That is our race. That, they are our, that is our people. They're our peeps. <laughs> the people of God. We are a new people in God. First Peter chapter 2. The other boundary line is that as citizens of any nation, we are called to submit. To submit to the authorities of that nation nation. And those are our our boundaries that we must then play the game within. Gives a lot of freedom there. But what are we trying to accomplish in this game? We've got the boundaries, we know some of the, the guidelines, but what's the object of this game? What are we trying to achieve in this intersection of following Jesus and politics. And last uh, week, we had a great gathering at 1230, and hopefully we'll do the same. Uh, Anybody's invited to brown bag in the parlor. We'll have water and maybe lemonade if we're lucky. And uh, just sit around the table and discuss some of the questions that that come up from this uh, interaction. And, and last time, one of the, the questions was directly related to how, how does this work in our day and age? I mean, what are we trying to achieve in this game, the intersection of following Jesus and patriotism and politics? Because there's no biblical parallel for our political system today. I mean, there's, there's not a hint of representative democracy in the political systems of Jesus' day or in the day of the Old Testament. So what are we trying to accomplish? And, and I, I think the Scriptures point us 
to one word that we seek to pursue as a member of a nation, as in our political involvement. We seek to pursue God's justice. We'll see from our passage that a biblical mandate for God's justice, to seek what is fair, what is good for all, what is life-affirming in every way. We seek to pursue heaven on earth. That's what Jesus has us pray. That was the prayer that He taught us. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, the way of heaven is what we pursue here on earth. And, and as we pursue being a, a jubilee community, I mean, what Jesus said, His purpose for coming on earth at His ordination sermon in Luke chapter 4, 18-19, to give sight to the blind, to, to release the oppressed, to release those that are captives, to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The jubilee community that we are to experience with each other is to overflow from us into the highways and the byways, into the neighborhoods and communities, wherever we are. That's what we pursue. That biblical pursuit of God's justice. One of my favorite pictures of God's justice is found in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. It's found on page 607 of your uh, pew Bible. Verse 17 through 25. And this, this paints a picture because this, uh, this understanding, this pursuit of justice is more art than science. We have, we have pictures of it that are presented to us that, that help us understand what, what's the guts here of God's justice, of His shalom. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is a picture of the that end result of God's justice. 
It's a picture that makes sense to the people in Isaiah's day. It very much connects to their experiences, which we'll see as we walk through it. Verses 17 through the beginning of 19 gives the, the general mood of the place. One of joy. One of celebration. One of joining in God's delight. In our heritage, in the old Westminster Catechism, the first question, what is the the chief purpose of human beings? It's to give glory to God and enjoy Him forever. And that's what this picture is. A picture of all people celebrating and enjoy at ease with one another. One of the ways that it's accomplished is... Verse 20 and 21, it's really through physically healthy lives. Again, Isaiah is using apocalyptic language. He's using metaphor. He's painting a picture, a way to understand, a way that the people in Isaiah's day can understand this joyous satisfaction, that there's there's no fear, that, that life will be fair, that the great tragedies of life will pass them by. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. Now, we look at that and we're like, wait a minute. Uh, I mean, in heaven, don't we all live forever? I mean, there's no death anymore, correct? Well, yes, and we understand that clearly after the resurrection. It wouldn't have necessarily been as helpful in this particular picture to the people of Isaiah. This, this picture resonates with them of this sense of satisfaction, of being at ease, of being without worry. It goes on. Not only is it there a, a physical, is there a health to lives, is there a wholeness to their lives, but there is a fullness to life, an equity even. That this picture of God's justice, of of heaven on earth, is one where everyone will enjoy the fruits of their labor. There will be fair distribution of resources and fair distribution of opportunity. Again, it's putting the the language in, in, in ways, picture in the ways that they can understand. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. End of verse 22. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. It's like when missionaries went to Alaska and some of the Alaskan tribes. They had to change some of the cultural pictures of hell. Because it didn't work in Alaska to say there's going to be eternal fire. They thought, awesome, that's a great place. When you live in Alaska, that really is a welcome spot. Well, and that's what Isaiah is doing here. He's painting the picture in their language of that of God's justice and equity and fairness and what is good and satisfying. That shalom. As I considered this, my my picture was an old southern neighborhood street. Rocking chairs on the front porches, ferns hanging, grandpa in his overalls, rocking in the chair with the kids and grandkids all underfoot and playing, and he's just sipping his sweet tea. That's the picture of biblical shalom, of justice, of this peace. 
And that's what we pursue through every mean necessary and possible. Where following Jesus and politics intersect, this is the object of the game to pursue God's justice. It's throughout the Scriptures, the Old Testament prophets over and over again. Amos 5.24 Let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Micah 6.8 What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? It was Jesus' picture when He came on the scene, as I've already alluded to in Luke chapter 4, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The New Testament prophet of James says the same thing in chapter 1, verse 27. What is pure religion? What is religion undefiled? It is to care for the widows and the orphans and to keep your tongue unstained from the world. Did you even know that was one of the sins for which Sodom was destroyed? Ezekiel 16, 48 and 49. It's made clear that one of the reasons that Sodom was destroyed is because they did not care for the poor in their midst. They did not provide for those that were weak, oppressed, or broken. They did not pursue that shalom, that fullness of life, that equity for everyone. And that's what we are to pursue in our engagement as a citizen. The last brown bag lunch that we had, we had a social studies teacher there. That was really helpful. And he said, you know, we say we have to obey the emperor. Well, we add an extra dimension. We are the emperor. We the people. This is our responsibility. We can't just blame the emperor or the king because we participate. Our response, the the way that we pursue this biblical justice in the intersection of politics and following Jesus is really threefold. I mean, one, we can lead, we can participate, or we can dissent. Okay, we we can lead. I mean, like Joseph, and there's a biblical example for each of these. Joseph with Pharaoh. I mean, Joseph became vice president. And he he led the people of Egypt in a way that provided for the needs of the people, that protected all the people. There may be some of you in here, soon or one day, who will run for office. And as a follower of Jesus, this will be your pursuit. Even the Westminster Confession of, uh, of Faith, in our book of confessions, encourages us it is lawful and good to serve as a civil magistrate with piety, justice, and peace. Many of you now lead by organizing within the community. We've already heard from um, Tools for Schools and Feast of Love that helps to provide that, that equality, that provision for all. And many of you And folks in this congregation participate in this neighborhood and community in terms of housing, racial reconciliation, business support, community development, raising up arts opportunities for all people, 
and community policing to provide for the protection of those that are weak. So we can lead. We can participate. We can participate by helping. It's like Daniel. You know, Daniel did. When he was called, he he participated in the government of Babylon, even, to provide God's justice. We can do the same. We can pray for our leaders. We can vote. We can help the candidates of our choosing. But it's not just at the ballot box every year or two years or four years or six years, whatever we're voting for. But it's also in our giving of our time and energy as we volunteer in our community to seek seek God's justice. Whether it be Treehouse or WizKids, Christ Community and the Deacon um, Food Collection. Or many other ways that we participate by giving of our time in the communal way, the political way of providing for God's justice. We can participate by helping or we can participate by challenging the status quo. And that was the work of Esther. She challenged the law of the day. She was an advocate for a particular issue. She was, would have been one of the ways that she could write a letter to the editor was appearing before the king. And we participate in that way also, again, pursuing God's justice. And finally, we can dissent. Like Jeremiah, like Isaiah, like Ezekiel. Over and over again, they protested. They, they, stayed, they boycotted what the kings were doing. Jeremiah, in chapter 1, verse 5, even says, He is a prophet to the nations, to the secular kings of his day. They, they protested. And we, too, can participate in dissenting, active dissent. As we mentioned last week, from Martin Luther King to William Wilberforce to Desmond Tutu, and many others in our heritage who have protested and participated by dissenting. Leading, participating, or dissenting. There are all kinds of avenues that we can be involved in pursuing God's justice, God's shalom, God's jubilee. Beginning of the summer, I encouraged you, and it's been on the slides and been in the bulletin, to be continually be praying. Dear God, show me how to join you in serving the world. Have you been praying that? I hope so. If you haven't, go ahead. Start now. And God will lead. God will lead you how you participate in bringing about His justice. And we've also been encouraging you to keep your eyes open and be willing to tell that story. We have in the atrium little yellow cards. This is how to tell your story of how God is teaching you, how God is leading you today so that you can share it with us to encourage us and then also share it with others as a testimony to God's goodness. There's all kinds of ways to pursue God's justice at the intersection of following Jesus and politics. What's the Spirit doing in and through you? Now, all of this might be 
nice, rosy, peaceful picture of Grandpa sipping sweet tea on the uh, front porch just after Sunday dinner. But I understand that in our In this room, even here, there will be very different ways that we seek to pursue God's justice. And what we must understand, that we must pursue Jesus' justice in a way that is like Jesus. That we must go forward pursuing God's justice firmly and strongly, but in a way that is filled with humility and grace. To do good, but to do it well. We don't want to win the battle... And then lose the war. We can win the battle in whatever issue God has placed on our hearts. Whatever God has inspired us to do. We can win the battle over that particular issue. But do it in such a mean-spirited way that folks are repulsed by our arrogance or vicious attitude. And thereby lose the war. Remember, our primary community, our essential community, is to be with Jesus' followers. It's to honor Him in all that we do. And know that in our community of Jesus' followers, followers, we will disagree. We will disagree strongly on exactly how we understand God's priorities. I mean, God may tell someone over here, this is a top priority, but over here... This is a top priority. And then over here, something totally different. And it may be God leading us in those different ways. And that can cause disagreements over what are God's priorities. We can disagree over how to achieve God's justice. Disagree strongly over which candidate will best pursue God's will. And we may disagree on these so strongly, but we must do so agreeably. Recall again Jesus' words. They will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Just as there are red and blue states, there are red and blue loyalties and opinions in in this community of Jesus' followers. But in Christ, every pew is purple. As the mixture of red and blue, but also the color of royalty. So here, no matter how bright our hue might be, we have purple pews where Jesus is indeed our King and our President. However strongly and whatever direction within the boundaries we pursue the final goal of God's justice for all. Now, what I want to share with you here is a conversation, or actually it was an interview, with three different Christian leaders. It was at the National Pastors Conference in this last February. And it's, it's not a video, it's an audio. So that's one of those awkward things. You know, where do you look when you have a four-minute audio? I don't know. Close your eyes. Uh, do, look wherever you feel comfortable looking. But keep your ears open to this interaction between three people. Um, Actually, Krista Tippett is the moderator of this discussion. You'll hear her voice first. The second voice you'll hear is is Chuck Colson. Many of you know, but he's the the founder of Prison Fellowship, was an appointed Republican official uh, under Nixon. 
The second voice you'll hear, or the third voice you'll hear is Shane Claiborne, who's the, one of the founders of The Simple Way, which is a Christian community in um, Philadelphia, in, in uh, a, a very poor section of Philadelphia where he and the community live in a very simple way, hence the name of their community. And then third is uh, Greg Boyd, who's the pastor of Woodland Hills Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I think also outside uh, in the atrium we have the the books that all three of these um, men have written um, recently or or rewritten that demonstrate just how differently they come at following Jesus in their political arena. But in the discussion, they get at how what's more crucial is their unity in Christ. Um, Greg Boyd's book, is the myth of a Christian nation, how the quest for political power is destroying the church. Colson's book is God and Government, and Claiborne's book is Jesus for President, if you want to read any of those later to hear their different perspectives. So let's listen as these leaders to grapple us. with hard questions on which we disagree are to fight and debate and be angry with each other. Um, Are there resources deep within evangelical Christianity that you have in common, that everyone in this room has in common, to disagree, to possibly move towards um, uh, reconciliation is too strong, but not necessarily move towards the same answers, but move towards walking together as evangelicals with these questions. How How do you think about that? Let me, let me give you a personal anecdote that may help you. When I, came out of, when I first came to Christ, before I went to prison, uh, a small group of men, five of them, uh, kind of embraced me. And I, I was discipled by them. Uh, one of them is today former governor of Minnesota, Al Quee. One of them uh, was a man by the name of Harold Hughes, who was as liberal a Democrat, anti-Vietnam War, opponent of Richard Nixon as you'd ever find. He heard me give my testimony one night. He said, I've just listened to you. You love Christ. I love Christ. We're brothers. I'll stand with you anywhere. Embrace me. Great big 280-pound ex-truck driver, ex-alcoholic. And all through Watergate and all through the years that followed, he helped me get started in the prisons. We were best friends. We never probably voted for the same candidate. But you can love each other. It doesn't mean you even have to like each other. But we're commanded to love each other. And sure, we're going to find political expression in different ways. Uh, I think there are some issues that are transcendent for all of us. I think justice itself is a transcendent issue. But, and yeah, yet we it's, can, always, it's sometimes hard even to talk about what justice looks like yeah. or where to begin in, in seeking justice. Well, I, think we, I, I think the civilized world has had enough experience at what is just and to be able to make a... I don't think we can much improve on the Greek's definition or maybe the Bible's definition is even better which is shalom, that is the condition in which there's human flourishing. I think we could agree on that. I think all evangelicals would agree on that. Uh, but we're not, we don't march lockstep into the ballot box. I, I said that in Kingdoms in Conflict, now God and Government. Uh, but certain issues demand that we get involved. Now, there is a respectable Mennonite tradition, Yoder and others are part of it, which say we just will stand back, create an alternative community, let the world see a better way. That's an honest difference of opinion that's gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years. I happen to belong to more of a 
Niebuhr School, that we are to uh, make an impact for Christ in how we live our lives and in uh, challenging the political systems. Uh, but, it's a, but you can still be an evangelical and come from either one of these traditions. And, you know, Chris, I think that's one of the things that's exciting about this conversation, especially for younger folks, that we don't want to repeat the, the, the mistake that the generation before us has made in, in, uh, in, in like, just this bitter, antagonistic meanness, you know. And if there's anything that I've learned from, like, conservatives and liberals, it's that you can have all the right political answers and still be mean, and nobody wants to listen to you if you're mean, you know. And, and, and I, I think that one of the things that we can do is learn to disagree well. And I think there is a new conversation happening with evangelicalism in post-religious right America that is much healthier. And we can actually learn to disagree well and wrestle with hard truth and, and, and hopefully then have ways that we embody all the ideas that we have that uh, can give us integrity. The thing that I think is really amazing in the Gospels is that Jesus chooses... Uh, Simon, a zealot, to be one of his disciples. They were the radical political revolutionaries, used violence when necessary. Uh, then he chooses Matthew, a tax collector, uh, the defender of the status quo, quo. And the difference between those two folks is greater than Ted Kennedy and Rush Limbaugh. I mean, they were at absolute opposite <laughs> ends. In fact, zealots sometimes would assassinate tax collectors. And he calls them both to be his disciples, and we don't hear one word about it, which tells me uh, Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, Simon's a little bit more right. or he, he, It tells me that the kingdom he is incarnating, embodying, and now motivating his disciples to follow is so different that to have Christ in common is to render inconsequential all of the particular opinions you have about what government should do. Uh, when, when Jesus is president, uh, those sorts of things just are rendered of very secondary importance. Friends, who else will pursue God's justice? Who else will do it? In our day and age, we're involved in politics in order to keep what we don't want out of our backyard and to get what we do want into our tax bracket. How else will we pursue God's justice unless God's people pursue it And what greater opportunity do we have than in this form of government where we indeed, we the people, are the emperor. May we pursue God's justice for all and to Him be the glory. Amen.